stream as it hurried down the hill. In defense of primary, God has given each of us talents and expects us to use them. Singing all the day, give away, oh give away. Singing, singing all the day, give, oh give away. When God gives us talents and commands us to use them, he gets very upset when we don't sing in primary. So in defense of primary this week, we would just like to encourage all of our listeners who teach in primary, like I did for eight years of my church service in various roles and capacities, or if you have primary age kids, or if you're in the primary presidency, or if, you're, if you don't even have anything to do with the primary, but you can at least go up there in the ward choir and use the talents that God's given you don't hide them. Don't bury them. God gave you those talents for a reason. Okay, Jason? Jason. God expects you to sing in the choir. Okay, bro? In in defense of primary. In defense of primary. On a, seri- on a, on a semi-serious note, I, I would say... You're doing great over this music, by the way. I would say that God does speak in layers and we take parables and we can understand them in all sorts of different ways so okay we, we have been a little bit hard on the primary lately and we did want to i wasn't being hard on the primary <laughs> don't i was being hard on the people that said that the, the, the towns didn't have anything to do with money so but whatever we're start if it sounded like we were being hard on the primary i wanted to do my best in singing a primary song to start just to show you that i also think that you probably should sing in the choir if you can use your talents all right jason Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. How you just said, Nate Pfeiffer, I have an idea that I'm going to do in post. You're going to love this. Oh, boy. (laughs) It's good to be back from five minutes ago. You mean last week? I mean last... (laughs) Last week? Last week, man. Last week, that was some heavy lifting. You know, and last week, we didn't quite get to, well, we never do. I don't I don't know why I'm calling out last week. <laughs> we never get to all of the scriptures. But there are a few things I wanted to cover in Doctrine and Covenant 61 as we talked about the land and the earth and one's being blessed and the other's being cursed. And then we were going to dive into Doctrine and Covenant section 63 as they're talking about signs and what we should do as far as seeking signs or not seeking signs. And we're gonna get we're going to get to one of my favorite stories from Joseph Smith. So let's let's get into it. In Doctrine and Covenants section 61, it says that the water is cursed. And and, and the context of this is the missionaries, and you know what? This this probably does fit really well with the context that you were giving us last week, and it probably would have been in there. So sorry I didn't. Bridget no, it's in, all right. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Keep going. But the idea is that they are coasting down the Missouri River to get to another spot. And meanwhile, the Lord points out, there are people on either side of the river that are getting skipped. So if we're talking about your responsibility to share the gospel to these people, and yet you're hiding your talent by just cruising down the river and missing all of these people that the Lord wanted you to to talk to. 
So the Lord's talking about them and saying, I, I prefer that you travel over land and I prefer that you be opening your mouth rather than kind of looking for the easy way out and traveling around a lot of the people and, and missing the opportunity to speak to them. And if it was just that simple, it would make sense. It would be good. But then the Lord says that the earth he had cursed in the beginning and and the waters he had blessed, but now he has cursed the waters and the earth has he blessed. And he says that the destroyer is riding upon the waters. And then this has spawned all sorts of urban legends as far as missionaries and what they can do or cannot do in water and, and what in the world is going on here? And what are we to make of this? What are we to understand from Doctrine and Covenants section 61? So starting off, let's talk about the earth. The Lord, when he says that it's cursed, we we get that. We can read it in Genesis chapter 1. The Lord says that at the beginning, we had this garden paradise that Adam didn't have to do a whole lot of work to get food or or, or take care of himself. It, It just grew. It was there. But as he's cast out of the garden... Now he has to start providing for himself, and he says, by the sweat of thy brow, and and the earth, which produced all sorts of fruit before, is now producing thorns and thistles, and then our favorite, right? Who here hasn't been out in the garden weeding, whether we wanted to or not, trying to keep order on an otherwise chaotic garden? And so the Lord where he's cursed it at the beginning, now says he's blessed it. Is it any different? Because when I go out into my garden today, there's still weeds, and it still needs to be pulled. And it's kind of fascinating how this works, the biodiversity and the plants and the science behind it, and I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole on that. But it seems just as cursed to me unless unless back in the day it was even more hard. But it's not until I actually take a step back and look at this from a big-picture point of view that I actually get an appreciation of an idea that the earth was cursed and now was blessed for our benefit. So if I go to the 1800s, 90% of the population here in the United States lived on farms. 90%. And today, that number is about 1%. Yeah. The earth at this point... 1% of the population is able to provide food to support 100% of the population, whereas before 90% were working to do it. So, So has the Lord blessed the earth? I mean, as we look at it from that point of view, when's the last time most of us have had to toil for our work? By the sweat of our brow, have we provided for our families? Um, Present company included, I I sit in an air-conditioned office and most of the work I do is problem solving or, or working on a computer and doesn't involve backbreaking labor or fighting back thorns and thistles and getting scratched up and, and working all day just to get enough food to be able to provide for my family. I sit in the studio and play Mario Kart and eat food with my friends all day, and I couldn't grow a weed if I tried. <laughs> I'm serious. So to me... Has the curse been removed? The Lord says it's been removed, and and in context of that, it seems it seems like a large part of it has. It seems like we are blessed to be able to to accomplish. I don't know. The work is hasten. The Lord is hastening His work in these last days. I don't, it's it's kind of cool. It's kind of neat to see the earth being blessed and able to provide, in a sense, in a way that we can get an education that we're not learning how to 
to go to war or we don't have to work all this all this other stuff that it's still rewarding we still do it from time to time we still have our own hobbies our own you know gardens that we grow in our yard or whatever the case may be but it's no longer hey if i don't get this done if i don't go milk the cows like they die i die we all die it <laughs> things have changed a little bit just within the last couple hundred years anyhow the earth makes sense. Now let's dive into the water. And I think that's where we're going to spend actually most of our time talking about this. What does it mean by the water being cursed? And I mean, how are we supposed to take this? And this is talking specifically, the Lord gives us the revelation with the Missouri River. And the Lord says, he says that there's a lot of disasters that's going to be happening in the future. And you're like, oh, shoot, what, what kind of disasters? What is he talking about? Have we seen it? Have we not seen it? So I went to the state of Missouri's website, and and they have this digital heritage section that talks a little bit about their history. And and get this. This is what it said right on the website, and I'll, and I'll quote it uh, word for word. No other kind of natural disaster has caused more death and destruction than floods. Um, bounded on the east by the Mississippi River, and bisected by the Missouri River and connecting rivers and streams, there's a rich historical record of floods in Missouri. And I thought that was interesting because Missouri, you're right in Tornado Alley, right? I, I would be a lot more afraid of tornadoes in my mind, but I haven't lived there, than I would be of flooding. But to have them stay outright, no other kind of natural disaster has caused more death and destruction than floods. It, it makes me think twice about what the Lord was saying here with these rivers. And the the most destructive flood in U.S. history actually occurred in Missouri in 1927 when the Mississippi River flooded. Uh, July 1844 was the greatest ever uh, Missouri River flood where it crested and, and raised 41.32 feet in St. Louis. It was called the Great Flood of 1844. So it does have a history of some crazy incidents back there. But it goes more than that, deeper than just Missouri, but global-wide. And, and as I was reading a commentary on Doctrine and Covenants, they said, uh, many have seen in the World War that broke out in 1914, so we're talking about World War I, a remarkable fulfillment of these predictions concerning troubles upon the waters. The extent of the losses of ships and lives is hardly realized. On the 21st of March, 1916, it was reported from Washington that more than 2,000 merchant vessels had been sunk by U-boats and mines. Crazy. Yeah, think about that. One day, March 21st, 1916, 2,000, and we're not talking about warships, 2,000 merchant vessels sunk by U-boats and mines. It's, it's pretty wild. And as I was looking, let's see, it, it, it talked about this on, on the global site. Let me try to pull this up real quick. While you're pulling that up, it made me think, um, are there sharks in Missouri? No. Not that I'm aware of. Okay, well, that's good because I hate sharks, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrified of sharks. And honestly, when you're saying like there's flooding... And tornadoes. I was like, Sharknado? No Sharknado. Okay, <laughs> because if so, that seems like that would be the perfect place to have it, and that's terrifying. Yeah, that would be terrifying. 
So from the so United I love how you just just blew right past that. <laughs> yeah, that would be terrifying. Would so be terrifying. There, there there are sharks in Utah. They have a little uh, shark dive. You could do it. Uh, Don't lie. Yeah, I'm not lying at all. In, in fact, which lake? It, um, it's not in a lake. They have it just off of the Salt Lake. They've created like this ocean saltwater dive. There's actually more people in Utah than the entire California that that get scuba certified, even though there's no ocean in Utah. I thought that was kind of weird. Is that true? It, it was when we took our our scouts to get scuba certified back in the day when scouts existed. Rest in peace. <laughs> so. <laughs> Going back to the United Eagle Nations Scout. here. If you could see me, I'm holding up three fingers like a good Eagle Scout would. <laughs> You're an Eagle Scout, Nate? Yeah, I'm an Eagle Scout. Hey, me too. There we go. That's why we're responsible. That's why we can get jobs, I think, is what they told me. <laughs> All right. <I'm... laughs> you can just blow right past me, Jason. I'm just stalling for time while you pull that up. Well, thank you. So the UN, according to the United Nations, around 74% of all natural disasters between 2001 and 2018 were water-related. And during the past 20 years, the number of deaths caused only by floods and droughts exceeded 166,000, while floods and droughts affected over 3 billion people and caused a total economic damage of almost $700 billion. Unreal. I... (laughs) I, I didn't realize there was this much going on. I, I mean, I think of waters and I think of swimming and, and boating and skiing and, and what's the problem with that. But it does seem like there have been a lot of destruction, that particularly 2004 when we had that huge tsunami that, that wiped out, what was it, 200,000 people within a matter of hours. It, just some, some incredible incredible things have happened. But I don't want to get on the literal too much on this. I, I did... I did take kind of a dive looking at some of these numbers, looking at some of these statistics. I thought it was interesting. But I think what might be more interesting to me is the the symbolic side of this. What is the waters? What is he talking about? What is the meaning behind this? And, and I feel like we've talked about this a little bit when we were talking about the center place. And the idea, if we go back to the creation account, that God is the waters recede. He stands on the center place and he organizes out of the chaos creation. And it talks about the Spirit of God brooding upon the face of the waters. And and God spoke and he divided the waters from above the land from the waters which were below, and he gathered all of the waters to, together and he called them seas. But he's imposing his will on the waters. And waters in many different societies and cultures in the ancient Near East was what was referred to as chaos. The, the, the idea that this chaos, this monster, was this sea monster, this this chaotic waters, often associated with the salt waters or the ocean, the idea that if you went out to sea, a lot of times they didn't come back or, or, or they died, the storms. I mean, look at the story of Jonah. A fairly regular deal. If you get caught out at sea in a storm, it's a bad deal. And you look at biblical history, look at, the founding of Israel. How do they get out of Egypt and how do they escape if it's not first stopping at the Red Sea and God showing his mastery over the waters, smiting them, saying, here represents a new creation. Go back even further. What happens when God floods the entire earth is symbolic that chaos has taken over. And because chaos is all reigning the world over because there's no more righteous people, they've lost order, he sends chaos to wipe out the chaos and then imposes order and starts all over again by, by having the floodwaters recede. 
and this new creation, this new garden, because what happens is he steps out of the ark. Here he is. This ark is what saves him, this paradise with all of the animals and all of the plants, almost like the Garden of Eden, and they're leaving Eden and starting all over as the waters recede across the face of the earth. Look at the Jaredites. How do they get to the promised land if it's not crossing these stormy waters? In boats tight like unto a dish. Tight like unto a dish. And later, Lehi's family doing the same thing, showing mastery over the waters. And and perhaps that's why it's such a powerful image to me when they're in the Sea of Galilee and a storm kicks up and master the tempest is raging And what does he do? He shows his mastery over the waters by standing up and saying, peace, be still. So symbolically talking here, and the Lord is saying that the waters are cursed or that the destroyer rides upon the face of the waters. There's some significance to waters representing this chaos and that chaos rules in a world that's, that's lacking order. Because the kingdom of God has been off the face of the earth for some time. Apostasy has ruled darkness and water. So now God is coming again to establish order and reign superior over these waters. And and it's interesting, I guess maybe a little bit of history for you. The Ark of the Covenant. We know the Ark of the Covenant as the mercy seat that sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple at Jerusalem, and before that at the tabernacle that they traveled through the wilderness. And and we say Ark of the Covenant, and I don't think we think twice about it. I mean, yeah, it's the, it's the Ark of the Covenant. But the first word there, Ark, means it was a boat. I have thought about this, actually. Yeah. I'm it, proud of myself now because I've actually thought about this in the past going like, what am I missing here? Yeah, why are they calling it an Ark? And in Babylonian, they had the Akitu festival. This is their New Year's festival. And what they would do is the temple housed their gods. And they would go to the temple, make a journey to the temple with a boat. And they would go in and take a miniature version of the god out of the temple and put it into the boat. And then they would travel around the city and then they would bring it back in this idea that God travels in a boat. His seat is on an ark. And, and look at Pearl of Great Price. I, I know we've been here once or twice in another episode. We've talked about these images, the facsimiles, right? There is, a, there is a picture, that seal, that round picture. And you look in the top right-hand corner, and there's a picture of, of a guy sitting in a boat. And you look at the description for the guy sitting in the boat, and it says God sitting on his throne. Mm. And, and the thing is, God's throne, his mercy seat, was an ark, was a boat. And in other cultures, they would even have tie-up posts at the top of the temple and this idea that God would travel from wherever he is in the heavens by boat to cross the seas that was space. Because you got this blue sky that he would have to cross this ocean and they'd have tie-up posts at the top of the temple for him to tie his boat to so that he could come down and visit his temple. Wow. And even the Hebrew word for heaven is Shah-Mayim. And Shah in Hebrew means there. And Mayim means water. So the word for heaven in Hebrew literally is, there is water. So the water's above the earth from the waters below this earth. And the idea that you have to travel through water to get to where God is, or God has to travel through water to get to where we are, and in this this chaos that we're having to pass through and impose order on. I mean, take take a look at baptism again, and maybe that changes our perspective, this idea that we have to travel through the waters 
to, to get to where God is, that we have to conquer this chaos, that we have to find a way to impose order on our own lives and, and go through a new creation as, as we try to change and as we try to repent and become like him. But I, I don't know. I love that. It's fantastic insight. I'm going to use that for my next baptism speech that I have to give inevitably sometime in this, in this world. They're going to be like, really, dog? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> You're not 30 minutes later, 20 minutes later, I'm going to be like, I'm still going. There's some symbolism here. A bunch of like six-year-old kids staring at me, picking their nose. It's going to be great. <laughs> well, In defense of primary, though. <laughs> and, and next time you're at the temple, maybe look for, because it, it happens, water imagery. As, as you're looking to, to create, water was always closely associated with the temple. You look at a lot of the, the temples, and they have fountains of water on the outside. And you'll also look at the, the carvings, like in the glass at Timpanogos Temple, you'll notice that it's got waves in it. Or if you look at some of the wallpaper, some of the, what they do in the room, they've got these, these rolling waves or this idea that it, this imagery of water and chaos shows itself throughout sacred space. Like everything else, I love that there's, that there's always the, the, not dichotomy, but there's definitely the, there's definitely the, there's the two sides of that where it's like Christ is the living water. Without water, we would die. Our bodies are made up of water to the same percentage that the earth is made up with water. Yet it, it can also be like this destructive, crazy, like you said, chaotic thing. I, I always I always love looking at the the things that the things that we need can also be the things that can kill us type of a thing. I don't know. There's always that's always kind of an interesting thought exercise. Well, it is interesting and because not only do you have this chaos waters associated with Eden as, as as the water recedes on this hill, this creation spot where it creates the world, but what else does it say about the Garden of Eden? Well, is wasn't it, there says, like seven rivers coming out of it or something? Four rivers, okay? And and the reason they say four, four is symbolic of the four corners of the yeah, earth. Or, oh yeah, exactly. So this is the fountain of living waters to which from Eden... The whole earth is watered, this idea that the water comes out of Eden and flows to cover the whole earth. And you're right, like God is the source of our salvation, but he's also there condemning. Well, or, in, the, or, in, the, in Lehi's dream, wasn't it everybody drowning in the fountain too? You know what I mean? It's like the fountain of living water, but then also also the people that had lost their way trying to get over to the great and spacious building were all drowning in, weren't they? Isn't that yeah. part of it, or am I misremembering? No, you this? were a hundred percent right because you get you get both representations because Nephi's asking to understand the vision, and and, and in one case they're referring to it as as these living waters, and and on the other case they're referring to it as this gulf of misery that people fall into the waters. This 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 destruction or this hell. So you get both represented at the exact same time. I wonder what the. I mean, I I think I might. I think I might have ideas of why but i wonder i wonder the reasoning of having it both be i mean is 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 it is it as simple as that we're going to be either saved or condemned by our own words or our actions or like what what we do with you know what i mean like how we choose to partake of that living water is going to be the thing that either were saved by or condemned by? Like, I mean, is it that simple? I mean, Christ was the cornerstone, right? This foundation stone that we should be building on, yet he's also referred to as a stumbling block. Yes. The, the stone that they rejected that now they're stumbling over, that this is what's destroying them. Hmm. 
Maybe it is. Maybe it is that. Maybe it is that simple. I don't but, know. I like it. But it is interesting because you do have these dichotomies all the time. And, and I guess to separate the two, you would look at, oftentimes they would look at the fresh water as the, the waters of living, the, the, the source of life, right? Yeah. Whereas if you're looking at the salt waters, you can't drink it. And, and usually what you're doing with the salt water is you're, you're crossing it in a boat and you're taking your life in your hands. If the storm kicks up or the waves... It's it's not it's not this life giver. It's this, it's it's that chaotic force, and so it's almost the salt water versus the fresh water. But it it is an interesting idea, and the Lord says, he he talks about the Missouri River in particular as having been a source of great destruction, and and I look at that and say, what whatever happened with the Missouri River that would have made it that destructive? Are we waiting for some great event to happen on the Missouri River, or is this something that already happened? But but think about this. When we talked about Eden and this being the uh, having a river that flowed out of it, and then Joseph Smith is saying that the Garden of Eden was right there in, in Missouri, close to the, the Missouri River, this is where they lived. In the United States, in, in in this part of the world, according to to Revelation, but where did they end up? Right, you look at after Noah and after the flood, and and they named the Tigris and the Euphrates after all the names that they were using from wherever they were, because that's what they're familiar with in this new land, right? Just like we, just like we have New York versus Old York sure. or New New Mexico or whatever the case may be. Right now, you have this all of these names, but it's a different part of the world. So where did the flood happen? Where did all of this take place? If he's talking about the flood that wiped out the entire world in respect to the Garden of Eden, it would have had to have originated at the Missouri River. Hmm. So so maybe the Missouri River is kind of famed or reputable in the fact that this is where a lot of that flooding that, that, that took place in Noah's time. It's just something interesting. I don't know. Cool. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I like it. All right. That's enough... Uh, Pretty sure that's enough water. To that's talk great. About from here, some really cool, some really cool insight in a lot of that stuff. Okay, I'm serious that I'm actually going to use some of this at a, at a baptism speech if I'm uh, <laughs> so required, and and everybody there is just going to be staring at me blankly, wondering why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, and, and and that's one thing I even glossed over when we talk about all the destruction from floods. We didn't even touch on the destruction from contaminated drinking water. I mean, over three million oh, people gosh, a year yeah. from from not having I mean, clean water. That's to, still. That's still such a massive, massive issue, but yeah. It is, and and I think the world's changed to improve quality for, for a lot of this, but it is interesting. Anyways, let's let's take a look at Doctrine and Covenants section 63. That is this week's Come Follow Me discussion. And they talk about the, the, the first part of this section really dives into signs. And, and he's talking about the Lord is saying that he's not very pleased with people that are looking for or asking for signs. And you have to wonder a little bit about signs. Like, where where do we see signs in the past? When is it okay? When is it not okay? Do you ever ask for a sign? Because we have, who was it, Hezekiah, the prophet, or not the prophet, the king, but the prophet came to him and said, this is what's going to happen. Now, now ask for a sign. And the king says, I, I'm not going to tempt God. I don't want to ask for a sign. And then the prophet chastises him for being wicked. Like God's telling you, look for a sign 
and and you're not asking for it, so I'm going to give you a sign anyways, and it tells them this is what's going to happen, this is what you look for. And so, and so there are cases where the Lord's throwing signs out. Um, I think of the example of Gideon, Gideon and the fleece. So at this time, Gideon is, is, is going to be a hero of Israel, and they've got to go to war with their neighbors that have been oppressing Israel. And this is before the time of the kings. They don't have a good leader. Gideon's the one that they're going to kind of solidify around. And they're asking him to lead the armies and to go fight their enemies. And before he does, he takes this wool, this this fleece, and and he says, okay, God, I am going to leave this out here. And, and if it soaks up all of the water, but the ground is dry, then I'm going to count that as a miracle because the ground's dry, but the fleece is wet. So he sets it out there. Next morning, sure enough, the fleece is soaking wet, but the ground is dry. He wrings it out and fills up a bowl full of water, and he says, okay. But but then he probably sees a potential mistake or flaw in his thinking because you, you, you've seen all those ShamWow commercials or whatever the case may be. What is what is a characteristic that fleece has is if it's not super absorbent? It, it absorbs moisture really well. So if, if there's a lot of dew on the ground, the fleece is going to be pulling all that moisture up, and it's going to be wet and leaving everything else dry around it. So maybe it was a natural deal and maybe not a miracle at all. So he says, God, please don't be angry with me, but I'm going to do this again. And if this time the ground is wet, but the fleece is dry, then I'll know it's you and not just whatever I was thinking. Then I'll know it really is a sign from you. And then sure enough, God does it. And so he says, okay, I'm on it. And he goes and he leads the armies and he conquers and he's victorious because he's God is on his side. We also have the instances of Moses when he runs up with Pharaoh and has this, this war of the signs, if you will, oh, and yeah. he keeps performing all of these miracles and ultimately the 10 plagues. Casting his his staff down, yeah, turning it into a snake. Snakes, dude. <laughs> snakes. This is my favorite part of uh. This is my favorite part is when Yul Brenner's just like, it doesn't matter. My magicians can do this too. <laughs> yep. And then his snake eats those snakes. And he says, "My sign's even better than your sign. My sign's cooler than your sign. It'll eat your snakes." And and even we have Elijah and the altar, right? Where you've got the people, the priests of Baal that all worship Baal. And and Elijah is just ridiculing everybody. He says, "Here, I'll show you. I'll show you a sign that my God is God. What we'll do is, I'll make an altar, and you'll make an altar. And if your God lights your altar on fire, then oh, we can right. know that your God's balls correct. And if my God lights my altar on fire, then we'll know that that my God's correct. And and it, it's not it's not just that. You kind of see some personality on this because Elijah's like, you know what? This is too easy. Dump some water on this thing." And and he keeps having them dump all sorts of water and do everything to make this difficult. And then when they're when they're when they're trying to get their God to light the fire for their altar, he even takes it a step further and says, Hey, maybe your God stepped out to go to the bathroom. No you, way. Yeah, he does. Oh man, dude, the dude was spitting bars. Okay, keep going. And he's like, Maybe you should speak a little louder, make sure he can hear you and yeah, just whatever the case oh, may be. Brutal. I mean, he 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 ridiculed him, and then he made his altar all super impossible, and then God did the sign for him anyways. So here we have all sorts of instances from the Bible. God does signs. Why does he do signs? When is it appropriate to ask for signs? And and what what do we take from that? Um, 
let's uh, let's just pull one of these verses out right here. I think this gives us a little bit of context to the conversation. It says, For I, the Lord, am not well pleased with those among you who have sought after signs and wonders for faith and not for the good of man unto my glory. And I think that's an important distinction. When you look at these people that have seen signs, what was the purpose for their sign? Was it to convince them of what they were to believe or not believe? Because Elijah already knew that God was God. He didn't need proof. Moses already knew. He wasn't asking for a sign to convince him. And even if we look at Gideon, he didn't know if God was going to redeem the people in war. He didn't know if the people were righteous, if God was on their side, but he knew that God was God. It's not that he wanted to say, God, is there a God? If there's a God, then I'll believe in you. Here's Just show me this sign. So I think that's what the Lord's saying here. I'm not well pleased with those among you who have sought after signs and wonders for faith. So when is a sign appropriate? He says, for the good of men unto my glory. So go back to Moses. What was the purpose of the signs? The good of men to establish. It was to show Pharaoh that like, this is for real. You got to let us do our thing. Yeah, and did Pharaoh get converted and join the Lord? Was this was this a deal to be able to convert Pharaoh to to have faith? No, 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 no. And maybe that's why the Scripture keeps saying the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's not that the signs were there for the purpose of converting Pharaoh to believe in the Lord. It was there for the Lord to deliver His people out of when, uh, Egypt. When Nephi zapped his brothers, what was the what was the uh, what did Nephi say? Wasn't it just to say, just so that you know that I'm, what I'm saying is true and that God's got my back? Check this out. Do yeah. you remember? I'm, I can't remember what it was that he said when he zapped them. He, he said something about them withering, right? If, yeah. if you, uh, I mean, we could look because I even think quick. he said something like, I think he, I think he even said something like, I'm not going to give you a sign just because you want. And then he's like, Well, actually, you know what? I am because God just told me to zap you guys just so that you know that he's real. I think it was something like that. I might be totally misremembering this. Let's see if I can pull it up real quick. In 17 is where he's commanded to build a boat. And... Because I think it goes right along with what you're saying. Where I think that Nephi even hesitated to do it. But again, I could totally be remembering this wrong. Well, and, and that's the other part of it too, right? Is... Like he wasn't doing it. He wasn't doing it to show off himself, right? Like he wasn't doing, and he wasn't. He definitely wasn't doing it to to try to convert him, as much as he was doing it to say, "You're going to help me do what I've asked you to do, and here's here's how I'm going to prove it to you." Yeah, and it's and it's for the Lord to save His people, right? Yeah. What would happen if He doesn't get to build the boat and they or just doesn't have help right doing it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, they don't get to the promised land. The Lord is doing this to save His people, but He also tells us in verse ten, "Yea, signs." Come by faith. So again, going back to what Moroni says in Ether 12, the signs don't come to faith, but they come after faith. Dispute not because you see not, for you receive no witness until after, after the, the trial. trial of your faith, yep. right? Yes. And, and he says, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. So, like, you're right. Nephi, if he wanted to, I, I don't know. How many times do you think Nephi wanted to, to reach out and say, Here, here's, here's your sign? But it's not his will. It was God's will that, that like you said, God I totally said. totally misremembering the story, though. 
What no, does it say there? So. Oh, did you find it? Let's see. I swear, I, I, man, I should have just looked it up myself. I should just leave it alone because I'm probably wrong. I'm just like pushing this thing really hard, and I'm totally gonna be. No, I think I found it. Let's see. Verse 48 from First Nephi 17. And now it came to pass that when I had spoken these words, they were angry with me, and they were desirous to throw me into the depths of the sea. And as they came forth to lay their hands upon me, I spake unto them, saying, In the name of the Almighty yeah. God, Don't touch me. I command you that you touch me not. For I am filled with the power of God, even unto the consuming of my flesh. And whoso shall lay his hands upon me shall wither even as a dry weed, and he shall be as not for the power of God, for God shall smite him. And then they didn't touch him. Yeah, and it came to pass that I, Nephi, said unto them that they should murmur no more against their father, neither should they withhold their labor from me, for God had commanded me that I should build a ship. Yep. And uh, let's see. Well, I want to get to this part where he's like, oh, and by the way, check this out. Verse 52, and it came to pass that I, Nephi, said many things unto my brethren, insomuch that they were confounded and could not contend against me. Neither durst they lay their hands upon me, neither touched me with their fingers. So they didn't touch him. Even for many days. Wow. (laughs) Now they durst not do this thing, lest they should wither before me. So powerful was the Spirit of God, and thus it had wrought upon them. So first off, they believed I mean, they demonstrated their Clearly. faith oh, yeah. by not touching him for many days yeah. when they were about to throw him into the sea. Yeah. This was not to convince them. They believed. Okay. And it came to pass that the Lord said unto me, Stretch forth yeah. thy hand. I knew it. <laughs> Again unto thy brethren, and they shall not wither before thee, but I will shock them, saith the Lord. And this will I do, that they may know that I am the Lord their God. There you go. And and was Nephi scooting his feet on a camel skin rug before, before when the God <laughs> said... Stretch forth thy hand. But in yep. any case, this sign was not was not to convince them to have faith. They they believed for the space of many days they didn't touch him because they already believed, but it was a sign that God showed to to demonstrate and, and to help further his purpose. Love it. Okay. And Laman and Lemuel had many signs, right? This is an example. We shouldn't be using signs just for faith. Obviously, that's not the purpose of these, and, and I'm glad we, we hit that. Um, now, there's one other aspect to these signs that I don't think we've covered. I mean, we've, we've talked about them being from the Lord, not from us. He doesn't do it just because of our desires. He only does it based on what he's going to do. And he also doesn't do it to grant faith. He does it for the purpose of furthering his work, showing his glory, showing his power, or redeeming his people. But he says, There were among you adulterers and adulteresses, some of whom have a turned away from you. Why does he mix in a story here about signs? Why, why does he start talking about adulterers and adulteresses when he's talking about signs among the people? And this this brings up perhaps my favorite or one of my favorite stories of Joseph Smith. He was in a crowd teaching people, and a guy kept interrupting him and kept yelling out, we want a sign. Show me a sign that you're a prophet of God. And and he kept interrupting him over and over again. And so finally, the prophet Joseph stopped his speech, looked at the guy, and said, do you want a sign? And he said, yes, I want a sign. He says, okay, you're an adulterer because a wicked and adulterous nation asks for a sign. 
And the guy standing next to him in the crowd said, it's true. I saw him last night. And the guy got called out on the spot and Please embarrassed him in front of everybody. Please tell me his wife was there. Well, I don't know if his wife was there or not. But it's just kind of a crazy story. And yeah, so it's it, dope. <laughs> and, gotcha. And, and there's something interesting about that relationship as the Lord talks about Israel being his wife and his spouse and apostasy being this, this adulterous spouse that, that is no longer loyal to him. There's something tying in there. If we, if we have to have a sign in order to believe rather than believe first, then our loyalty is not, is not necessarily tied to the Lord. Maybe our loyalty is tied to something else. And the only way that we're going to leave that something else is if the Lord was to show us something great enough that we feel it's worth leaving that something else to to worship the Lord. I think I kind of just want to add in here too. It's that it's it's I feel like it's easy to start dismissing signs and miracles that we have seen, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people, I feel like that that are in different you know places with their faith, and some maybe moving further away from from their testimony then closer to it and so many times in those conversations a lot of it has to do with yeah well i i i always thought that that was a thing but i've i've been able to kind of like find a way to like justify it right and so when you go show me a sign or show me a miracle before i'll have faith it's 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 not something that i feel like holds right and it and and i think that the idea i think the idea is is just trying to build a house right like if it doesn't have a foundation it doesn't matter how how great the paint job looks right it doesn't matter how beautiful it looks if it's if it's not well built it's not well built right and and like i I say this all the time and and a lot of the conversations that i have with people and especially you know things relating to spiritual things is that you there are there's really only one way for me personally that I can like go forward with information that I've been given and that's to like have it pass the how does that react in my gut check right mm-hmm. how does that react how does my soul how does my body how does my how does my common sense how do you know how do all of those things internally react to information that I've been given or to what I'm reading or to what I'm seeing right because you can eventually write off and justify things that you see with your eyes. Well, maybe I maybe I saw that different or well maybe that wasn't exactly maybe I saw it as a miracle, but now I can look back and maybe it wasn't actually as like miraculous as I thought, right? But the only things that for me I truly can say like, hey, I I, I don't say I know a lot of things, but as much as I guess a person could know something, those things all came to me not by what my eyes saw, but by what I felt inside, right? And and I think that that's kind of the the applicable boots to the ground, at least you know, application for me, is is that it won't do you any good to see signs if you're if you haven't learned how to understand things internally first. If you haven't learned how God has told us He will confirm things to us. If you haven't learned how to go through that process, it almost doesn't matter what you see or hear or read or whatever because you you can find a way to dismiss those things even if they were super profound. Well, and I think to your point when when you're approaching this from a moment uh, you're approaching this from a position of incredulity, right? You, you don't believe 
and and you said you said it's easy to kind of forget or dismiss these signs after time or you know maybe it sticks out to you for a moment but it kind of fades and you start to wonder and justify it away maybe that was just a coincidence or maybe that was because of something else that happened maybe it wasn't really what it was and and as you start i think it's because like you said it's the foundation if you're painting a house with no foundation what is the foundation of that built on because if the foundation was built on doubt give me a sign cuz i'm not sure i believe oh, yeah that's a, that's even a better point keep going yeah cuz you you've built it on doubt and so down the road it's easy to doubt what you saw because you weren't even sure in the first place. You, you gave yourself an out before you even had a chance to like show some courage in putting faith into something. Yes. Fantastic point. Fantastic point. And and I guess I'm just it's like every time we go over this, this is where I kind of always come back to is that idea of show me a sign. I'm like, cool, what what would you do with it? Right? Like what would you do with it? Like because you can have miracles, you can see signs. In my opinion, go read the words of God and pray about it, and pray and ask for a sign. Right? Ask for ask for a miracle to happen. Ask for a change of heart. Ask for a confirmation from God. Right? It's like that's 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 as about as amazing of a miracle as you can have. But that one's almost like too easy, right? It's like, what? That one's almost like that one's almost just like, well, no, I, I want something that's like crazy and dramatic. And it's like, I don't know, like ch- having your heart changed from, you know, somebody in doubt to somebody that believes that, you know, that there is life after this, that you have a family, you know, after this life, that your sins can be forgiven. I'm like, man, that seems like a pretty great miracle. That seems pretty massive. But I guess, you know, I guess I could, I don't know, change water into wine, I guess, you know. But if, like you said, if, if, if what you're, if, if you're already building this on doubt anyways, even that wouldn't change your mind, you know. Well, and what greater sign, when you, when you look at 2,000 years before Christ even comes, and you have this event of the Passover that is, yeah. that is accurately prophesying the way in which the Messiah will die— to the detail of the the vinegar being served up to him while he's on the cross, yep. to the very hour he's going to die, and and you and you might look at that and say, yeah, well that comes from the Bible, right? And the Bible was all published after Christ in the New Testament. And you're like, whoa, 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 this is a Jewish tradition from a people that to this day still do not accept Christ as the Messiah. Exactly. What greater sign do you need? Oh my goodness! Than than a, a a culture that does not accept him yet has this tradition testify him because if they accepted him then it'd be easy to say oh they just rewrite they, they rewrote their past so that it would match right but now you have this culture that doesn't even accept or believe that this is the messiah yet their tradition testifies to it almost as a testimony saying we didn't doctor this we don't even believe this what greater sign can you have than the old testament prophesying of all these things thousands of years before they happen and them being fulfilled if that sign is not enough to convince you and like you say if you have doubt going in that's your foundation you're you're going to be always doubting it's it's never enough i don't i don't know that i can believe this believe first build that foundation get that testimony and then signs will follow because now it's not a question of of doubt or not. It's it's it, it's it's your sure foundation, and that and that doesn't mean that 
And and I like what you're saying too is that establish the foundation first. And by the way, establish it on the things that that we are told that we're supposed to establish it first. Jesus lived. Jesus suffered and died for us. We can repent of those things. Like let's just start there, right? Mm-hmm. Like start there and start building from there because the thing is is that is that it's it's an amazing thing to be able to continually ask questions. And I don't even, I, I try not to even call it doubt as much anymore because, because I don't think that that fairly describes, at least for me, what, what I am trying to do. And, and that doesn't mean that there's sometimes, you know, you read something, you're just like, oh man, like that's, that's kind of jarring. But like uh, my, my, dis- I, I seek to then discover and understand those things just with a different perspective. It's not to try to disprove or prove really anything as much as it's to go like, hey, like these two or three things that I feel like I'm pretty rock solid on because I've spent 40 years of my life trying to, you know what I mean, put these through the ultimate tests over and over and over, that I can always kind of come back to those things and then go, okay, cool. Where is the rub with this other thing? What don't I understand about this other thing? Instead of going, well, cool, I just believe everything. And so that anytime anything gets questioned that like I can't find a an answer for, like, okay, I just have to blow the whole thing up. I'm just like, oh man, like I think it's so healthy to seek and 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 find answers to your questions, even the ones that are hard, even you know what I mean? Even some of the things that you might not understand. Like, dude, the history of the church is is definitely not like the most rosy thing that you're kind of almost led to believe sometimes as a child. You know what I mean? It's like that's it's 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 not it's very complicated. Like uh, it's not simple. Right? And, and I think so, intentionally so. I totally agree. And that's I'm not I'm not judging it as good or as bad. I'm just saying sometimes sometimes I think that we like to believe that you know from from Joseph Smith's ver- vision Everything on to here clean that it was ro- super easy it's like man why doesn't everybody just believe this this is the most this is the most uh, this is a cakewalk right and and it it doesn't take too long to kind of go back through things and start going like okay this is not a cakewalk right like okay cool like i'm going to have to i'm going to have to have my my faith challenged awesome i'm going to have to i'm going to have to actually exercise muscles of faith i'm going to actually have to figure out how to to communicate with god and resolve things that 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 are that are weird rubs for me right and i guess i'm all i'm all i'm trying to say is that is that you you don't stand a chance of having any of those resolved if you're coming into it with like well i don't believe any of this and so I'm going to need it all, like, I'm going to need a miracle to prove to me that any of this is true. It's just like, oh, cool, like, you, you're just going about this the wrong way completely, right? And 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 like you said, it's just, I I just don't know, I just don't know how anybody could ever want to know or believe anything if every single thing is approached with, well, I don't believe any of this, and it's going to need some pretty dramatic miracle for me to believe any of this. And it's just like, well, that's just not the way... That faith works. That's not the way that learning works it, of anything. That's you know. That's just not the way that understanding works. Yeah. To be clear, I don't think having faith means you don't have questions. In fact, the opposite. I think if you have faith, that's where your questions begin. 
because you do believe you have a hard time understanding a lot of these things or because you do believe you want to know better what the Lord's even talking about. And some of the things that happen, like you say, in church history or in the scriptures, confuse the heck out of us. They go back to Go back to Missouri, as we talked about in a few episodes ago. The Lord says this is going to be your place of tribulation. And and I think, okay, look at Lehi's vision. And you see the tree of life, and you see the path, and you see the iron rod. When do the mists of darkness come? It's after they are on the path. It's after they have their hands on the rod that the mists of darkness really kind of come in. And it's it's... It's because you have faith. It's because you believe that now you have questions. I I think those questions are almost a result of the faith because you are going to be tried. You are going to have to to wonder. There's nothing wrong with having questions. It's healthy. It's an important part of our progression. It's part of that tribulation that we have to struggle with this. Who who was the, the greatest... The, the, the most difficult thing that Abraham ever had to do, sacrificing his son, who's the one that asked him to do it? It wasn't the devil. It was God. And Jacob didn't fight with Satan. It was the Lord. Mm. The Lord, I think, is intentionally ambiguous at times. I, I, you look at the Godhead and the whole message of the Godhead. This is supposed to be the center, core, most important thing to have an understanding of God and faith in God. We need to understand his nature and look how ambiguous it is. Maybe because we have faith, we care enough to wonder and have questions and want to know, and that drives us to, we don't have signs to believe. We believe first there's got to be a God, but then we use that faith to help us understand uh, I don't know. I think you're saying it very articulately, very succinct. And and, and if if you if you struggle with this, if you're looking for help on this, one of the best one of the best books I've seen is the lectures on faith, when they talk about what faith is, and and this idea that you know we wouldn't turn on the light switch if we didn't believe that the light bulb would turn on somewhere else and illuminate the room, right? And our faith that that's going to work drives the action that we actually push it. And we push it, and then we no longer have faith. We just know that that's what's going to happen. And this idea, I mean, a very simple deal, we we believe that if I pray and ask God, he is going to answer my question. There's a reason why this is what's pushed out to investigators and the basic and taught over and over and over again. There is this idea, if you have faith to the point of action, that you act on it, that you will no longer believe you will know when you pray and you receive that answer and you know that God is is true. When you have that faith and you're no longer looking for signs to justify why you believe in God, but you believe that there's a God, that faith will help you answer all of the other questions that follow. And I almost look at it like a, a, a space shuttle. If you're out on a spacewalk... What, what what good would it be to be on a spacewalk if you didn't have some sort of tether? And and answer that first question first. Is there a God? Is this... And once you have that, use that as your anchor, use that as your tether to explore all of the other doubts and questions that you have that you can always at least fall back on that and it keeps you grounded as you explore. Amen. Totally agree. Okay, sorry, I spent way too much time hashing over that, but no, let's um, 
let's just go over a few quick points at the end, and we'll we'll, we'll wrap this episode up. It says, um, "But unto him that keepeth my commandments, I will give the mysteries of my kingdom, and the same shall uh, the same shall be in him of well of living water." springing up unto everlasting life. And we talked about this living water before, this idea of, of, of it being good versus bad. But if you're looking for inspiration, if you're looking for understanding, if you're looking for help uh, with your questions, maybe the very first place you should start is, but unto him that keepeth my commandments, I will give the mysteries. Be obedient. Uh, follow the thing. If you know that there's a God, you know this is what he wants you to do, be obedient to the what you know he, he's asking of you. Be obedient. Be true to yourself, to your conscience, to what you feel you should be doing. And then you can expect the, in the, the revelations to help you answer the questions that you have as you continue to explore. And then it says, And now behold, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning his saints, that they should assemble themselves together unto the land of Zion, not in haste, lest there should be confusion which bringeth pestilence. And this is a good point. You, you look at the Civil War and, and how pestilence killed more people than, than all other sources, cannons, gunfires combined. It, it, some of that was just because they put a latrine above their water source. Yeah. Yeah. When you're doing Yikes. things in haste, <laughs> you, you screw up, right? It's not, always done, it's not always done the right way. Sometimes you just got to slow down and do it the right way. Word. And then this is the last point I want to end on. Wherefore, let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. And, and he, this idea, right, the name of the Lord, let's not take it in vain. But he takes it one step further. For behold, verily I say that many there be who are under this condemnation. You're like, well, there can't be that many people that use the name of the Lord in vain, right? He says, who use the name of the Lord and use it in vain, having not authority. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, having not authority. What does that mean? And I think the example of, um, who, who was it? Was it, uh, let's see, Oliver Cowdery who corrects Joseph Smith and says, hey, you need to change this revelation because the Lord did not say that. This is what, in the name of the Lord, you're going to be you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, you haven't been. <laughs> it's not your place, dog. Yeah, it's, it's not so much saying God in an inappropriate setting as much as sometimes speaking in the name of the Lord when you weren't asked to do that. When you start counseling people and saying, hey, the Lord wants you or the Lord's telling you that you need to do this, were you authorized to do that? Are you authorized to be speaking on his behalf and saying that for that, for that person? I, I hesitate to jump in here with this, but I actually have some thoughts on this too. Please do. About things that I think that we, in our religious community, have problems with, with this. <laughs> Here we go. Here, where's the button? Here we go. Where's my button? Here we go. I, I worry that sometimes, as part of the culture, we say things a lot like, how do you think, how do you think God feels when you, as this six-year-old child... <laughs> I don't know, punch your sister, you know, whatever it is, uh, your, your, uh, I don't know, your eight year old, it, you know, in my case directly lies straight to your face. <laughs> um, you're teaching a primary class and, and one of the kids is monkeying around. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, how do you think Jesus feels when, when you do that? 
And I, every single time, want to raise my hand and be like, I think he loves you so much that he probably doesn't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you mean you, you eight-year-old child who is still learning what to do and what not to do? Um, yeah, I think Jesus just loves you and would bless you and would probably tell the person saying that to you, hey, buddy, you should probably chill out trying to tell this eight-year-old child who I'm trying to tell you to be like, I would be very careful, adult, how, you, how you're trying to correct this child in using my name and referencing me and telling that child, well, you should, you should think about your behavior because I'm going to tell you what I think Jesus would think about you. I am so appalled by that that I can't hear. Because the thing is, is this is... It's it's manipulative behavior, man. It's manipulative. It's manipulative correcting, because what we really want to be saying to that child is, as your parent, I will not allow you to lie to me without being punished. Because that's what we're really trying to say, right? We're really trying to say, as as a steward over you, I am going to try to help discipline you in a way that you understand that lying is the wrong thing to do. You can for sure say, cool, we've been commanded, thou shalt not bear false witness, I don't know. But even then, I feel it's fairly unnecessary because it literally needs to be as simple as, I don't like you doing that. And so when we say, I think that Jesus, I think that Jesus would be really upset with what you're doing right now, or how do you think Jesus feels about what you're doing right now? I can just, I literally just in my mind seeing Jesus up there waving his arms going, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't need anybody telling this awesome, beautiful child who's just learning what, what I don't want to give them the wrong impression of how I feel towards them, which is love. Love, love. You're a kid. You'll figure it out. Love, love, love. Parents, peoples, teachers, countrymen's Romans, lend me your ear. Please don't speak for God when you're talking to these awesome kids who are being kids and probably blowing it. Don't blow it also. And, and again, I'm speaking for me. I'm speaking for everybody. I'm not trying to preach here, but I kind of am. <laughs> Please, can we get rid of that in our religious community's lexicon? Please, I'm asking, please. Can we get rid of, how do you think that made Jesus feel? Please, please, can we get rid of that? Jason, am I wrong here? You can tell me if I'm wrong. I, <laughs> I, 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 I would branch off of that with one story I had from a, from a friend of mine in elementary school. Uh, but I, I would say, I, I see where you're coming from, and, and I, I think you're right. Like the, That's what the Lord's talking about, speaking in my name without authority. Did I tell you to say that? That's my point. And, and I, think, I think asking the question, how would Jesus feel, is fair if you're allowing them to then come up with their idea of how, the, how he would feel, because they're the best judge of that. But if you're telling like him how he should lead, feel— It's a leading question, though. And the thing is, is it's— I, I, you're, you're implying in, in a, that Jesus would feel exactly, a certain in a way. I see what where you're saying. In, in a situation where you're disciplining a child and they know they're in trouble, and then you invoke the name of Jesus to discipline them instead of, 
as a parent, I love you and I am trying to help you choose the right thing to do. Let me help teach you. Let me help, let me, the person in front of you, help guide you because I can speak for me. I can tell you how it makes me feel as your parent when you lie straight to my freaking face. Like, I can tell you how that makes me feel and therefore let's base our, let's base the discipline off of that. Even if you're trying to do everything you can to do it in the way that Jesus would do it, I just, in so many situations where it's being implied you're in trouble and Jesus is upset with you. Yes, and you're right. And if you were to approach this not not from a point of view that I have already made up my mind that exactly. what you did is absolutely wrong, but if you were to just, just simply say, okay, tell me real quick, how do you think Jesus would feel in this situation? And then you say, okay, if you think he's great, then great. If not, not. But but not putting any kind of flavor or spin on that. But can we do it without putting any... I, see, I know what you're saying, and again, like I, I think that in the right setting... I think that in certain settings that that probably would work better than others, but nobody nobody says it other than in situations where there's clearly an implied. Here's what I think that Jesus would think that you should think as well. I'm or just or saying, if you say, or maybe maybe if you change it and say, look, if you acted the way that you feel Christ would have you act, if you're truly trying to follow Him, then I've got you back. I support you 100. percent Whatever you did. But 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 you're right. Like in in a, in a case where clearly, I mean, you're trying to discipline. Maybe maybe there's a when better have you approach. Heard it no, I'm saying, when have you not heard it in either a disciplinary <laughs> thing or you've just done something really good? And I'm sure, and I know Jesus is really happy with you too. I'm just like, uh, it just feels a little. I, I think I, I agree it with just, you. To me, I'm just saying, like, I just think that I think that this is one of those things where I have a feeling that God would be 100% cool with us going. Hey, child of mine, I am so proud of you, and I'm really happy with you, and I really appreciate you doing those those good things. How do you feel inside? Does it make you feel good? Like they they can, they're smart enough to draw that's, that conclusion. That's the better way. But that's what I'm saying. Is they how can, do you feel? That's, what, that's about my point. What you did. Is you're not saying you're not saying how do you think Jesus feels about this? You just ask them like, hey, how do you, how does this make you feel? Because dude, at the end of the day, they're going to say either like meh. Or they're gonna be like, yeah, I actually feel really good inside. And the thing is, even then, I don't even think that it's necessary for us to be like, okay, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. Instead, you just go, remember that. Remember how you feel when you do these good things. Because I can promise you that the more you do good things, the better you're going to feel inside. I can promise you that because it's the same for me. I can promise that when you do knucklehead stuff, you're not gonna feel awesome inside. And you don't have to say, and that's because Jesus is mad with you. <laughs> I'm just saying, man. I agree. I agree. I think it's a great point. Look, and if anybody's listening to this and is just totally email, we have the email. Hi. Hi at weeklydeepdive.com. We're here. We'll listen. If we're totally wrong on this, please let me know. It's, I, I only I bring it up. Point. I only bring it up because I think that the more we try to be better about just just the, our our lexicon the more that we just try to be better about the things that we're just we've heard so many times so we think that we're supposed to just say those things i think that sometimes we say those things without even thinking about it and the only reason i bring that up is because you brought up that scripture it's a great and i'm point. just going i'm just going even even simple things like that we should just be very 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 careful about speaking for god 
when it's clearly in a lot of these cases not our place to do so. That's all. Well, I think that's amazing how they put it in Doctrine and Covenants because he says you're taking my name in vain. You're like, I've, I, when have I ever used the name of, of the Lord in vain? And he says, using it without authority. I mean, that... It, it's about as in vain as it gets using it without authority. And and speaking for him when we don't have that right to speak for him. And and I think a lot of times we're eager to do that, as we've seen in cases. And and it's good to to have a little reflection and see, am I actually taking it in vain when I don't actually use his name all the time, but am I speaking out of turn? And and the, the story you reminded me of, this, this kid in elementary school, a teacher asked him, what would Jesus do? And he said... Probably zap him. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> and you know, he's not wrong. When you talk about Christ being the same God as the Old Testament, then yeah. you and you say, what would Jesus do? Do you understand all the extenuating circumstances? Because there are times oh, yeah. when steadying the ark and that was enough that, I mean, what what is the case? And, and, and by putting us in the shoes as if we pretend to know what God is thinking and what God is doing, is is to say that we are God. Is to say we know all of the different things. What what emotions is that kid dealing with? What what did he decide to do instead of? And, and how did he use restraint? Sure. Or what level of understanding does he have? Well, it's funny. It's funny that actually reminded me. I this is back during um, uh, George W.'s years. I was you know I'm sure having a conversation about like the morality of war with a friend of mine and and you know I. I, I don't I don't I don't think I came out on it as black and white as or I wouldn't now today maybe as I did back then but it was so funny he's just like as a religious person like what do you think like you think you think that God would condone war and I literally went have you ever read the Old Testament <laughs> like I I mean I understand you're not a religious person and I know you're trying I know you think you're zinging me on this I know you're thinking of zinging me like you're a religious person and you think war's okay. Well, that seems like a really godlike, Christ-like thing to do. And I'm, I literally was just like, "Have you read the Old Testament?" And he was like, "No." And I'm like, "Cool, end of conversation." <laughs> I was like, "I don't know. I don't know if you really want to have that conversation." Well, well, it never happened after after the New Testament, you know. And then he never condoned. I'm like, "Oh, you could justify it however you want to, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever." I'm just saying, like, you can't. It's not, and that's not even saying that he would or wouldn't condone war. I'm just saying it's not as black and white as what would Jesus do. It's just like, wow, that's a very complex. That's an actually very complex question. Could you could you imagine stepping in on Nephi right after he slays Laban and telling him? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I mean, he was literally like, I don't know. I didn't want to do this he either. He shrunk because he didn't want yeah, to do he it. he didn't and want God's to do it like, either. Do it. Yeah. And you're like, come on. What would Jesus do? Or, or, or going to, to Isaac when he's about to, or Abraham when he's about to sacrifice his son. Yeah. Dude, Abraham, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I don't know. I think he, he, he told actually me to do did this, sacrifice so, his son, yeah. didn't he? I was be like, yeah, I think, I think that he told me. So yeah, it's, that's why, again, like I— To, to your credit, I, I see where you're coming from, and I agree 100%. Let's, you don't have to agree. No, I do. It's, it's, I'm just saying I'm not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to strong arm you into agreeing with me. I just, I just, know, that, I just know that there are sometimes things that, that a lot of my friends— and again, like because of my work, I am like blessed to be around a lot of people on very, very, very different parts of their journeys, right? Mm-hmm. Some of which have been very active and now are just completely active. Some to some even completely like like angry and anti, right? And so many times a common theme of like where I got lost was there was just there was so much stuff that finally just started feeling a little 
a little brainwashy to me or a little like a little zombie-ish to me or a little, you know, and things. And then you go, okay, well, I that sucks. And I would hope that it doesn't feel like that, right? But then, but then when you talk specifics, you go, what specifically made this feel, what specifically started... What specifically started rubbing you the wrong way? And it's funny because it's a lot of the same things that I cringe over every time, right? One of those are, well, everybody was, instead of just teaching somebody how to be, how to like fix a mistake, it was always, it, it was always like, I'm going to invoke God to make you feel ashamed of what you did. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how I feel. I'm going to, I'm going to make you think that. I'm just going to tell you I'm going to I'm going to use God to manipulate you into feeling shame in his name. And for me I go that is so out of bounds for me, right? And and that's and that's and the fact that the fact that I I look at that and I go, man, if I didn't have my foundation in a couple very specific places, that's something that I would be totally like, whoa, 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 that's that is so out of bounds, right? That is completely out of bounds to use to use God to to put our expectations on somebody, and you know a lot of a lot of things. You know, y- you have a row of kids getting up and saying the same three things to start every fasted testimony meeting. You know, you're just like, hey, can we can we be better as church members? That's all I'm asking. Can we be better? Can we just do a better job of going, hey? That's awesome that your kid wants to go up there and bear their testimony. Can can we help explain to them that you don't have to start a testimony by going, I'd like to bear my testimony and know this church is true and I know my family loves me and I know that I love my family. You're like, that, that. nowhere in the scriptures does it say that you have to start a testimony like that, right? Nowhere in the scriptures does, but, but when you have eight kids in a row go up there and say literally verbatim the same thing, you go, Hey, did did we kind of miss the point of what we're trying to do here in this meeting a little bit, right? And and is this something that we're going, hey, we're we're missing such an opportunity to, you know, to to really to really teach our kids or to teach each other or to learn for ourselves like, oh, why is it that we why is it that we just say that? I'm not I guess let me question why I start every prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for this day and thankful for all of my blessings. Like like I do mean those things, but sometimes it just becomes. Meaning behind but that's what I'm saying words. is like it just sometimes starts becoming so verbatim. S- verbatim, you know, ending every blessing with and all other things that Jesus wants you to have, ever all the other blessings that you that you stand in need of. It's like, dude, that's the job that you just were given was to give that person a blessing. Don't don't don't, don't pass that off. Don't punt on. Like it. don't punt on that. Stand in there, and if you need to wait a second to feel something to know what to say. That's what your job is, dude. <laughs> like, get in there, dig in the trenches, and it's okay if you need to take a minute to really try to to understand what you're supposed to say. And I guess this the only reason I bring this up is because again, I, I I know that this sometimes sounds like preachy, but I'm saying this only because I know I do know of of a lot of people that I've had this specific conversation with that are no longer a part of the church that that have said very specifically, it starts becoming just a little scripted it just starts becoming a little too wow is everybody really supposed to say all of those things all the time even if they don't know what it means like it's a little weird when you're in fast and testimony meeting and nine kids get up and say the exact same thing and you're kind of just like 
I, 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 was there a testimony in there? Is uh, Did we miss the point of what this is supposed to be? Because this really just was weird, having nine kids go up, I'd like to bear my testimony, and I know this church is true, and I know that my family loves me, and I know the prophet's the prophet, the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You're just like, wow, that's those are really, I, I, I actually agree with those, <laughs> you know, but, but I don't know. I don't know. And again, I might be totally off here. It's the only reason I brought it up is because this reminded me of this and it felt like more or less a good time to go, hey, if we can all just, and dude, if we're all, if I'm saying things that are totally wrong, again, forgive me. I'm just, I'm trying to figure all of this out too. And at the same time, try to figure out how can we, how can we just continue to be better even in how we speak, even in, even in the things that we say, like how can we continue to, you know, to, to just, to correctly, uplift each other by by not having it be so i don't know scripted i guess yeah and and i think there's a verse right here at the end that just hits exactly what you were saying so well it says verse 64 remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the spirit and, and and I think you're right. It, it, it's so easy to fall into pattern. It's so easy to do we do we say the same prayers all the time? Do we do we say the same testimony or do we teach our kids to do that? As it started at a young age, but remember that which is spoken of is sacred. And and how do we preserve the sanctity, the sacredness of a testimony? How do we preserve the sacredness? of having a conversation with God in prayer? How do we get them to think about the words that they're using and, and not just repeat it off cuff because it's the same thing that everybody else says or everybody does? How do we, how do we treat that with the sacred nature that it, that it deserves? So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you said it. And, and you look at missing the mark. I mean, in the Old Testament, you got stoned for saying the name of the Lord yes, out loud, wild. right? You say his name yeah. out loud, and, and that's it. And it was, my kids were watching a video today, and in his Old Testament times, they're like, he had a reputation for being a, a blasphemer for saying the Lord's name. And I'm like, no, he didn't. If he was in the Old Testament and he had a reputation, no, oh, no, yeah. he dies after the first yeah, instance. Exactly. There's no reputation. But what if, what if the commandment of the Lord, don't take my name in vain, isn't about saying his name or not saying his vain main name. It's about how we speak in his name and and, and whether we speak how we pray authority. in his name. How we how we bear testimony in his because name. Because we finish it in the that's name of that, Jesus Christ. I think Christ. and this is where that's and again, like I know that it probably felt like I got lost in the weeds, but that was my point was is that we're doing all of those things in his name. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. Is as is if if we're doing those things in His name, what you just said is, I feel like we just need to be more careful. That's all, or, or deliberate, not careful. We need to just be more deliberate and and you know, aware. That's that's all. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm sorry if I came across as like super ranty in that last section. <laughs> my my point was is that we are doing all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it starts feeling a little scripted, and it can be it can be a little. It, it it just it sometimes it, it just sometimes I I would just I know whatever maybe we can all including me just be a little bit more aware that's all exactly and and I look at my life and I, I try I try not to cuss there's words that I can count on one hand one hand how many times I've said and the Lord's name is something I have never said so as I it's read awesome. these verses and I and I look at this and it says don't take the name of the Lord in vain I'm like yeah I've never done that and it says wait by speaking without authority. I'm like, it, it makes you pause and it makes you start thinking about it. 
and I'm I'm super glad you brought those points do, do, up. Uh, and I and I know we're way past time, but do you want to go even one step further? How about that we've taken upon ourselves the name of Christ and that like our actions, how we behave, uh, how we behave. <laughs> I'm just yeah. saying, like it's a can of worms. I, I don't, I don't. But you're right. I, that's that's there just for you guys to think about. That's for you to 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 go down your own thought thought exercises with is that we've taken upon ourselves the name of Christ, and so even our actions or our behavior is hopefully not taking the Lord of the name in vain as well. Well, thank goodness when he calls out the adulterers and adulteresses that are among the congregation, he says to them, repent speedily, right? Yeah, yeah you you may have screwed up, but you look at the oh, poor I one screw that up he all says, the time. you know, uh, neither do I condemn you. Repent and sin no more, right? There you yeah. go. Let's, let's that's, just make... that's the hope for me. That's the hope for me. Because <laughs> as, soon as, for as soon as as soon as that popped into my brain, I'm just like, oh, I'm in trouble, man. I, we are all in I'm trouble. In, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> Anyways, all right. Um, that was awesome. What do you got? What do you got for us next week? Uh, next week we are talking Doctrine and Covenants. What is it? Sixty four through sixty six. And I'm trying to remember exactly what they put on this one. If I remember right, let's see. The Lord requireth. The heart and a willing mind. I love it. Heart and a willing mind. All right. Well, until next week. See ya. See ya.